So, testing. We have a new mic. <laughs> Might not be new to you, but it's new to me, this one. <clears throat> so, part, I just want to know, how are you doing? You know, how'd it go? How was your first day of retreat? <laughs> Good. Good. Okay. What one person answered for everybody, that's fine. <laughs> he said it was good. Uh it's usually it's usually one of the hardest days the first day of retreat. Sometimes it's hard because you're new to retreat and it's a new form or new technique or new way of practicing and often it's can be tricky because <clears throat> we're going at a certain speed and all of a sudden we've found ourselves in a slow motion vehicle and we're not used to it actually. And we're not used to um, uh, what I call jet lag, the, the slowing down of all the movement that we do, the pacing that we live at which is actually fairly rapid. And it's fine to live at that pace, but it's also really helpful to begin to learn to live at other paces, to show up to or to be awake or to be alive and aware at a slower pace than our usual pace of always being busy and doing and doing and doing. But it's like having jet lag at first. We're not used to it. And then after a while, a few days or a week or a few weeks or a month or three weeks, three months or a year, it starts to feel more normal, this kind of slower pace. But usually the first day or so, is, it's good, but it's, it's hard. It takes some getting used to. So tonight uh, we talked about... <clears throat> first night talk, we thought we would give a talk that was helpful for the orientation of this retreat in terms of concentration, mindfulness, insight. And uh, we would, we're going to start, I'm going to talk a little bit of really a basic retreat talk, a basic mindfulness talk on mindfulness of the body. And there's a number of different reasons why I wanted to talk about mindfulness of the body. One is that I found it so helpful as the beginning of practice to start with the body and being mindful of the body, being sensitive to the body and coming into the body and be beginning to relate to the body not as a thing or something to use, but it's something that's alive and right here, right now, and that we can pay attention to and begin to build our concentration by being aware of our life, our livingness, our bodiness, <clears throat> and, and refine our mindfulness with the various ways we can be mindful of the body, even being mindful of the breath, being a mindfulness of the body technique mindfulness of posture, mindfulness of movements, 
mindfulness of the um, uh, energies of the body, the aliveness, the awakeness, the sleepiness, etc. And both Richard and I have had a lot of um, pleasure or happiness or satisfaction in really being very mindful of the body as part of our practice. And I thought I would read to you a quote from Ajahn Mun, Ajahn Mun, about the body. He said, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature, see the elements that comprise it, see the impermanence, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. That's a beautiful instruction, quite an inspired instruction about mindfulness of the body. And it's coming from our lineage. Now, some of you may not know you're in a lineage, but you are in a lineage. And one of the main uh, lineages here is the lineage of Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah was a, quite a well-known and wonderful um, uh, uh, Buddhist teacher in the last century. And um, Jack Cornfield studied with Ajahn Chah. And so and then many of us have studied with Jack Cornfield, and this center was originally founded with Jack and a number of other people. And um, we've all been influenced by Ajahn Chah through Jack. And Ajahn Mun, who this quote is from, was the teacher of Ajahn Chah. So he's another generation behind, further back in the lineage that brought us Ajahn Chah, that brought us Jack Cornfield, that brought us Eugene Cash or Richard Shankman. We've all come through this lineage, this kind of practice that Ajahn Chah taught, that Ajahn Mun taught, etc. And it's a body practice. It's a human body practice. And one of the beauties of lineage is it begins to remind us or awaken us or open our eyes to the humanness of how the Dharma comes to us. Because it doesn't come out of books or it doesn't come out of, you know, ideas. It comes out of humans. And it's come out of humans who practice like you're practicing today. Sincerely, dedicated, um, with all the difficulties and pleasures that practice brings. And so I always find it very satisfying to know about the lineage that I am part of or that I'm swimming in or in this case meditating in 
and that we're all part of right now. And I love Ajahn Mun's enthusiasm, right? In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. You know, he's very clear. He said, you, you want to know about the Dharma? Don't let your attention go away from the body. Stay with your body. Stay awake to your body. Even right now, stay awake to your body. How do you do that? Listen. Where are you listening from? Where, where, where are your ears? They're part of the body. Sense your body as you listen to the talk. Really, if you do that, you'll get all of what's good in my talk. If you stay present, if you stay awake to your breath, to the body, to the breathing, to the livingness, to the movement, to the what's comfortable, to what's uncomfortable, to the liveness that's here, that's, that's you or part of you. And he says, as you examine it, as you see the nature, see the elements that comprise it, see the impermanence, see the selflessness of the body. And when it's true nature, when the, not, not our idea, not what we've been, not the conventional idea of body, oh, we've got to keep it together, we've got to work hard, we've got to exercise, we've got to look good, we've got to be handsome or pretty, or we've got to, you know whatever, shave our beards or our underarms or our pubes or whatever it is, you know, you think you have to do to be okay. He says, when the true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. I mean, that's, that's a nice offer. That's a nice inducement to practice. The wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. There's another quote I have here also, one of the many positive quotes about practicing with the body in Buddhism, and it's from the Buddha. He says, he said, one thing, one thing, if developed and frequently practiced, leads to a deep stirring of the mind, to great benefit, to great security from toil, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a happy abiding in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and deliverance. What is this one thing? The mindful contemplation of the body. Totally simple, ordinary, mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the posture, mindfulness of the movements, mindfulness of the energies, Mindfulness of the liveness, mindfulness of the sleepiness, mindfulness of what's here. You don't have to, you don't have to look far for the Dharma. It's sitting in your seat. 
And even the Buddha, he says it, what is this one thing, the mindful contemplation of the body? And he offers all kinds of great fruits, right? You get deep stirring of the mind, which means that we're touched or we're moved deeply. Remember, mind is often, mind and heart are often interchangeable in the Asian languages that the Dharma was originally written in. So, so, um, <clears throat> so there's a deep stirring of the, of the mind or heart, deeply touched as we start to pay attention to the body. There's great benefit, great security from toil. You know, there's, we're, we're, we begin to let go of the kind of um, uh, really I have the image of like trunks of trees we're carrying around on our shoulders. The kind of heaviness we carry around, the kind of suffering that we carry around, the kind of difficulties and hardness and, and um, uncomfortableness that we're carrying around, that begins to release, to let go. And what comes is mindfulness, clear comprehension, the attainment of vision and knowledge, a happy abiding in this very life. And that's not a bad offer, given the difficulties of human life, the ways we get lost, the ways we toil, or the way we, the ways we are troubled, <clears throat> and the realization of the fruit of knowledge and deliverance. Knowledge means, and deliverance means waking up, waking up to to reality, waking up to who we are. <clears throat> it's so uh, woven into our humanness, mindfulness in, of the body. And by that I mean, I mean that the possibility of Dharma is just already sitting here. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go far away. You don't have to, be, as I said last night, become somebody else. But pay attention to your direct experience and don't undercut that possibility of how to pay attention, of how consistent you can be in your attention, about how sensitive you can be in your attention, and how powerful that attention can be. In other words, it can lead to, to knowledge and deliverance, to freedom. And the mindfulness, the clear comprehension, the direct knowing of what's happening as it's happening, a unity of the intuitive and cognizing capacities of heart and mind. <clears throat> and knowledge and deliverance. Funny, we don't, we have mixed feelings about knowledge often in the West, you know, because we spend so much, so many years getting educated, right? And you have to learn this and you have to learn that and there's all this learning and all this knowledge we have to consume. 
that we're not really familiar with the kind of knowledge that comes out of us, that is inherent in who and what we are. We don't know how to pay attention to ourselves so that the knowledge reveals itself. There's an interesting root to the word knowledge. The root is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis is the root of the word knowledge etymologically. <clears throat> and it's, it's really the aha knowing. It's the knowing, it's actually gnosis. The word gnosis, when you look it up, it says a special knowledge of spiritual mysteries. That's a beautiful knowledge, a special knowledge of spiritual mysteries. And that this is, this is what we're doing. And it's hard to see when we look at the difficulties or the ordinariness or the confusion or the you know, lack of um, consistency that happens in practice. But you already have some kind of intuition of it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. And, and in, in my mind, in my view, it's already in you. It's not that you, you create the knowledge. The knowledge is already here. What we do is we find a way to the knowledge. We find a different way to use our awareness, to use our consciousness in order to pay attention to the depth of what's already here, to the goodness of what's already here, to the richness of what's already here. And so I like to talk about mindfulness of the body, partly because it's so central to the Buddha's teaching, partly because it's been so central in my practice. It's where the relative and the absolute converge. How's that for, that's a nice line, isn't it? The relative and the absolute converge. Or here, this might be more understandable how Suzuki Roshi put it. He said, human beings are a temporal expression of the truth. Human beings are a temporal expression of the truth. That our physical medium, our body, is one of the Dharma gates to awakening. And the fact that we're here in this form, in this shape, with these capacities that are just human, they're just normal human capacities, are doorways to awakening. And so the Dharma, on one hand, is asking us some kind of serious questions Serious meaning they're, they're, they're real questions or they're profound questions like, who are we or what are we? You know, what's the truth of being a human being? Or well, what's the depth of being a human being? <clears throat> and the conceptual questions are asked, but we're not and the, the, what's confusing for us is then we think we have to give a conceptual answer. 
And the Dharma is not looking for a conceptual answer. It's looking for knowledge, gnosis, truth, immediacy, the reality of what's at our depth, what informs us from the deepest place. And so it's not looking for a conceptual answer, it's looking for an answer that's found in direct experience. And so all the training of the Dharma, learning how to be mindful, learning how to pay attention, learning how to be consistent, learning how to be composed, learning how to be steadfast, learning how to concentrate, those are all in the service of having the capacity to pay attention to direct experience. Not conceptualizing the experience and telling ourselves that's what it is, but actually examining the direct experience moment by moment, examining our life, our livingness, our aliveness right now. Here's an easy way to do it. For a moment, think about your hand. Right, just think about your hand for a moment. You know, how many fingers, skin, what's in there, you know, there's fingernails, there's, you know, veins and arteries and blood and blood cells and all that kind of stuff, all, all right here in the hand, right? Then there's, and if you look, if you see the skin, you see lines on it. And, you know, the lines get more serious as you get older, right? They get a little deeper or stronger. And then, you know, maybe there's the, the finger you hit with a hammer one time or you cut accidentally when you were cooking. And all, all kinds, there's history here. There's all kinds of stuff, right? Okay. Now just shut your eyes for a moment. And just feel your hand without all that information. Let go of the conceptualization and go to the direct experience of your hand. And you'll notice the mind and especially, this is true for many people, but in Vipassana too, since we often do noting, it'll actually name what's happening. Oh, vibrating, hot, cold, uh, you know, hurts or feels sensitive or numb or big or small. And that's okay. You can let the concepts be there, but stay with the direct experience. Stay with the immediacy. That's where, that's how we continue to be mindful, continue to concentrate on this object we call the hand, and to learn something more than our conceptualization of this direct experience that's alive that we call the hand. And we want to pay attention to the body. We want to learn more about the body. We want to see how direct we can get with our embodiment. Because there's the Dharma, there's the awakening that the Dharma offers us, or the fruits of the Dharma. And then there's the expression of that awakening. Right? Some people wake up and it's kind of a mental thing. 
They have they have some insight. They see oh everything's impermanent or you know or there's no self really or whatever. But it's it's a little detached or it's a little unmetabolized or undigested, digested, and it's not integrated. They don't live an awakened life because they're not actually in their bodies. And so part of our practice of being mindful of the body, paying attention to the body, is about embodiment, about allowing our lives to become an expression of the Dharma and our love of the Dharma, our, our care for the truth. So there's a lot possible here with just being mindful of your body for a day or a week or a month or a year or or your whole life. It's a beautiful uh, way to practice in daily life is being mindful of the body. One of the easy practices, you don't have to tell anybody you're doing it. You know, when you're in a supermarket, you're buying and you're moving stuff. It's the bodies doing all this stuff. It's paying, it's getting the money, it's putting it in the pocket. You can feel all of that. You can be aware of all of that. And not simply aware of, oh, how much did it cost? And can I afford this? Or, you know, or I wonder if I can get it cheaper in the next store. I mean, those are important thoughts sometimes, but that's not the whole, that's not all that's happening. Your life is happening moment by moment by moment in the grocery store or the supermarket, in the school, if you're picking up your kid or if you're a teacher, if you're gone to the baseball game or the basketball game or if you've gone to the theater or you've gone to a dance performance, your life is what's, the liveness is what's doing all of that. And you can start to pay attention to that aliveness all the time. Even as you're acting and living and beginning to express the Dharma moment by moment. It's also a great way to drive. (laughs) I mean, really, driving can be, you know, it has its pleasures or beauties, but it's also a pain in the butt sometimes. But if you're practicing, it's a whole different thing. You're not just driving, you're practicing. You're there. You're there in a different way than just, oh, where am I going to, or how do I get there, or what's the traffic, or how long is it taking? That can all be part of it, but you're there physically as a consciousness that's embodied. It's a different experience. It's much more like sitting on retreat when you start to bring your practice into your life that way. So what else happens with mindfulness of the body? I have so much stuff here, I don't even know what to talk about. Awareness happens. means we start to contemplate this experience, even the experience 
that's listening right now, right? Because that's most of you are listening, I'm talking. But you can be aware of your experience even of listening, of taking in the words, of breathing while I'm talking. Maybe your body's a little tired and you want to just fall asleep or you're hoping the talk won't go too long. Or, but there's an aliveness here that's happening. <clears throat> it's really a little bit polite to sit up if you can while you're at a Dharma talk. Thank you. I mean, I know they get boring and it'd be nice to go to sleep sometimes, but we're all just doing the best we can. Hmm. Richard's going to work with you now. So to contemplate, to start to pay attention to your body in a more precise way, in a more refined way than we're used to, means to pay attention, to feel or sense, to consider attentively, to gaze upon, to observe, or to behold. And that's a kind of interesting word, behold. We don't, we don't use it so much anymore. It used to be used much more. You used, you'll see it in some old books. Now, you know, I'm going to wait till Richard's done. <laughs> no, I mean, if you need to do that, it's okay. Uh, are you okay? Yeah, no, it's okay. If you really need to lay down, you can. Yeah, no, e- either way, it's okay, just so you know that. But sometimes people just lay down because they feel like laying down, and it's not that they have uh, an injury or a bad back. Okay? Yeah. So, behold means paying attention to what's happening. Like we're beholding what just happened here instead of ignoring it or pretending, or being okay even if something's not okay. But in the old books, it always used to say something like, behold the the diamond, or behold the jewel, or the queen, or the dragon, or something like that. And when we find it in literature, the word behold signifies a numinous, magical reality. And that's why it's a beautiful word, to bring to mindfulness. Because what'll happen as we're mindful of the body, and really as we're mindful of all of our experience, is that numinous, magical quality that's inherent in reality will begin to show itself. We begin to step out of conventional reality or consensual reality and the world comes alive. Suzuki Roshi talks about it a little differently. He says, to stop your mind doesn't mean to stop the activities of your mind. It means your mind pervades your whole body. Such a foreign concept to us. Means your mind pervades your whole body. See if you can just do it right now. 
Let your mind pervade your whole body. You can, you can do it. It's doable, really. You start to feel the whole body, and you don't have to worry about getting each little nuance, but the whole sense of bodiness and letting your attention, your consciousness, your mindfulness begin to immerse itself in that physical reality, in that sensory reality. Suzuki Roshi puts it this way. He says, your mind pervades your whole body. Your mind follows your breathing. With your full mind, you form the mudra of your hands. With your whole full mind, you sit with painful legs. Right? This is Dharma practice. Is starting to see what we're knowing, we're knowing by imbuing it with our mind fully. Not partially, which is how we think of or how we've been trained to be present with things, like from a distance, but to actually let ourselves be immersed in our experience, even the experience of just sitting here, just feeling your body. <clears throat> so one abides, it's said in the Satipatthana Sutta, one abides contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, as experience arises and vanishes, not clinging to anything in this world. And this is one of the keys to freedom, as we start to get a different relationship to the body itself. Generally, we tend to identify with the body, like this is me, right? Everybody got it? This is me, right here. This is me. But I can assure you, in 40 years, this will not be me anymore. Maybe 50 years, who knows, you know, if I live really long. But really what I'm saying is, it's a, it's a temporary identification. It's a partial, it's part of the picture, it's not the whole story. And if we start to recognize that consciousness seems to have some capacity to exist without the body, that's a really interesting possibility, right? I'm not guaranteeing that or anything, but, but it seems to be part of the deal. <laughs> uh, so partly I'm, I'm talking a little this way because um, um, I had an accident um, six months ago, something like that. Richard said a few people were asking if I would talk about my accident. And, and I'm like, sure, I'll talk about my accident a little bit, about what happened. Because it was very much happened to my body. So I, I was on the Buddhist bike pilgrimage, which is a wonderful bike ride. And I've done it a number of times. And, and I was, went up, uh, it was like the, one of the first big hills on the ride. But it, it always surprised me every year because it wasn't so big. And I didn't know this route. And I went up it. And, and I can go up really well. I'm a good climber on a bicycle. And so I went up really quickly. And then you go down. 
But what's surprising about this hill, which is actually not that big, is that the down is much bigger than the up. Usually it's the up you notice. It's like, and then, okay, you get a quick down and you're done. Well, on this hill, no, it's a longer down and it's a steep down. And whatever happened was by the, by the bottom of the hill, I crashed, which, you know, I've crashed a few times on my bike, but nothing like this. This was a serious crash. And it was uh, hard on the body. You know, I broke a bunch of bones and uh, ribs and um, uh, what is this called? Clavicle? Scapula, clavicle, both. I broke both of them. And... Um, and hit my head hard. You know, I had a helmet on, but it's still not a good thing. You don't want to do that if you can avoid that. And um, and then I had the repercussions of that kind of accident. I was in the hospital about five weeks, which is, I think, the longest I've been in the hospital ever. And um, uh, and then the recovery, the the kind of time and energy and effort it takes to recover from that kind of accident it takes a while. And um, I mean, even like sometimes people say, how are you doing? And I always go like this. You know, I'd roll my shoulder because the shoulder didn't move for four months. And so I'm like, amazing what the body can go through and then that it can recover or what the head can go through and wh- what can happen, how it can recover. And um, uh, and it was also wild to watch how practice happened after the accident. I, you know, and in the hospital and in, you know, definitely not pleasant circumstances. Not, not whatever unpleasantness you're having at Spirit Rock, I, you know, I mean, and it can be plenty unpleasant here. Believe me, I, I know I've practiced here. So, but this, this was more unpleasant than I ever had on a retreat. Um, but it didn't stop practice from happening. And partly, and it, now again, you'll notice how I say it, it didn't stop practice from happening. I don't say it didn't stop me from practicing because I didn't really feel like I was doing it even because I didn't have that kind of capacity after the accident. Or, you know, I mean, I had, I mean, I had something, but it wasn't like I was thinking, oh, I need to be mindful now. That would be really good for my recovery. I wasn't, wasn't, that wasn't my idea. It was just happening practice was happening naturally. Sometimes in the middle of the nights in the hospital, this practice would happen and it would be good. And not only good, it would be beneficial or it would be illuminating. And it wasn't just illuminating to, oh, you're having an accident, you're going to be fine. No, it was more serious, the first stage of after the accident than that. I didn't know what was going to happen. But even that was okay. And that was surprising. And I do, you know, attribute some of uh, what's considered, at least the medical people tell me, I've had a really, really good recovery and it was relatively quick by their terms. 
um, um, some of it I attribute to I was in decent physical shape because I already always did certain kind of exercise or taking care of myself and done yoga and some weights or some bike riding and things like that. But also because of my mindfulness of the body, my sensitivity to the body. Like as I started to recover and more consciousness come, more more clear consciousness about what was happening and how to do it and even going to recovery. Uh, I went to the best recovery class we could find in San Francisco at CPMC. And it was, uh, you know, it was interesting. Took, they they, they um, gave me a five-hour interview to see whether I was, they wanted me in their program, right? They did five hours of kind of, checking me out or analyzing me and and you know which is fine and then they said yeah yeah come and and you you'll come three hours a day twice a week I'm like great that that's doable I can do that okay three hours a day twice a week and I go to the first three-hour class and I'm meeting with three different teachers one one hour for each one and after I meet with the three of them they they converge and they, they have a talk together and they say, don't come twice a week, come once a week. I'm like, okay, that, that's good. That means I'm doing okay, you know, so okay. Well, then I come back the next week and I come the second time and, you know, the same thing. And then they talk and then they said, you know, don't come, call if you need some help. You know, and what they, what it turns out they're doing and and this is it's really it's a wonderful program and actually I have called them at times when I needed some help because more than anybody I know and I know a decent amount a lot of people good people caring people all that stuff but most people really don't have any idea what I went through but the recovery people get it when I talk to them about what happened or how I'm thinking or what I'm perceiving in terms of body, world, life, what I can do, can't do, they they got it and they were helpful in, in educating me about good ways um, to, to conceptualize and understand what was happening so I could work with it skillfully. Um, um, but, but the key thing that they were doing, they're teaching people how to be mindful of what's actually happened and happening to their bodies, so then the people can work with it skillfully. <laughs> so they thought I was really good at that. <laughs> and I was, because I understood even before they explained what they were doing. It's one of the things I've learned from meditation. Becoming mindful, becoming more aware of what's happening means you have more choice about how to respond to, how to be skillful, whether it's with your body or your heart or your mind or your partner or your work or your passions or your cares or your difficulties. As you pay attention to your body here, 
is you learn how to be really mindful, really sensitive, really attuned, really awake or aware of your body, you will have more and more skill in how to treat it well, how to care for it, how to use it in a skillful way without overusing it, etc., etc. And it's true of all the areas that you bring to mindfulness. So it means learning how to pay attention to our body. Here's something you can try. Put your hands on your head for a moment. Just feel your head. Feel what your head feels like. Is it bigger or smaller than you usually imagine? Usually most people it's smaller. <laughs> and isn't it interesting how it's, you know, it's not that big in general, right? You know, it's maybe a bowling ball size. That's the whole deal. And that's, that's an important part of the body. And then you could put your hands on your chest or on your legs and start to come into a more immediate relationship with this aliveness that we call me or I or Eugene or Judy or Richard or Nancy or David or whatever you call it. One of the reasons why I like the touching practice and really just getting, oh, this is not so big, the hat. It's, you know, it, it thinks it runs everything, right? But, you know, I mean, it has its place and has its intelligence and does its thing, but it's not the whole show at all. So what happens as we start to become more mindful of the body is we can start to become more compassionate about this human experience. And the Buddha had a beautiful phrase. He said, because we hold ourselves dear, we maintain careful self-regard both day and night. It's from the Buddha. Because we hold ourselves dear, we maintain careful self-regard both day and night. Careful self-regard is mindfulness, is care. Is, and mindfulness being kindness, warmth, compassion. Mm. And there's so many ways we suffer physically, bodily, right? Like I'm describing my accident. There was a lot of physical suffering. That was a hard, a hard bike ride, really, and unpleasant. Or all the ways, you each know ways you suffer with your body people who if you've broken arms or legs or if you've had to have something removed or surgery or if you have a certain kind of illness or or some kind of limitation energetic or systemic or you know it's, it's all part of our practice because our practice is about human life being mindful of the body
or looks. I mean, really, let's be honest, for human beings, especially in the West, how we look or how we don't look is a way that we suffer. You know, once in a while we think we look okay or we look good. Mostly we're critical of our looks or our shape or our size or our length or our lack of length or whatever it might be. I mean, it doesn't have to be really dramatic. I mean, just have a bad haircut, right? Anybody ever have one of those? Right? <laughs> and I got more than one person saying yes. Well, good. <laughs> yeah. And we're sometimes we're harsh with ourselves, physically hard, harsh with ourselves. This is from Anna Swer, Polish poet. She said, I say to my body, I say to my body, you carcass, you carcass, I say, you carcass crated, nailed down, deaf and blind like a padlock. I should beat you till you scream, starve you for 40 days, hang you over the highest abyss of the world. Perhaps, perhaps then, perhaps then a window in you would open. On everything I feel exists, on everything that is closed to me, I say to my body, you carcass, you are afraid of pain and hunger. You are afraid of the abyss. You deaf, blind carcass, I say, and I spit at the mirror. So that's the opposite of our practice. <laughs> That is not our practice. But she says it well, what is sometimes in our hearts about our body and what we want our body to do or how we want it to be. And even in terms of the Dharma, you know, we should be able to sit all day and not have pain or be fine or I should be able to sit through all the most difficult things or I should be able to sit for many hours as I want so I can get enlightened and and it's not exactly the way it works and believe me as a young man I tried and no that didn't it it teaches you something no doubt about it pushing the edge will will teach you something sitting with hard stuff physically will teach you something if if you want if you need to learn that but it's not the doorway to freedom necessarily that sometimes people think it is. The body as a thing we manipulate, as a thing we take for granted, as a thing we assume will be fine no matter what. And I mean, I've had mostly a relatively healthy body. You know, I've had plenty, enough dukkha. Anybody not know what dukkha is? Let me just see. Anybody? There we go. Okay, we got a couple not. Well, here you go. Here's, here's an important word in Buddhism, dukkha. Dukkha means, is the original word or the word that's translated most often as suffering. Dukkha. Suffering, disease, uncomfortable, unpleasant, stress, Yuck, you know, dukkha. And dukkha is the beginning of the end of dukkha. 
learning how to pay attention to our dukkha, to our suffering. And so <clears throat> the body is one of the places that we have and will have dukkha. It's part of the reality of human life. And so it's really important or helpful, I believe, to learn how to pay attention to the human body and to not push it when we don't need to push it or not hurt it because we assume we know what's best or that we need to be, you know, whatever our idea about what the Buddha was or something like that. It's actually much more Buddhistic. That's a funny made-up word. Um, it's Buddha-like to be compassionate when our body's having a hard time. It doesn't mean to be indulgent. I'm not saying that. No, it doesn't mean, oh yeah, you don't ever practice because it's hard sometimes. But it means you learn how to do it with kindness. Even if you're sitting with difficulty at times. This is a quote from uh, uh, Lama Yeshe, who was a wonderful, he was a wonderful Tibetan teacher who was here in the West for quite a while. He talked about, he said, never have I known the experience and sufferings which attended my stay in intensive care. At its worst, 41 days after I became ill, the condition of my body was such that I became the Lord of a cemetery. My mind was like that of an anti-God and my speech like the barking of an old mad dog. As my ability to recite prayers and meditations degenerated after many days, I considered what to do. And you know, this is somebody who's practiced most of his life. He said, I did stabilizing meditation with strong mindfulness through great effort, and this was of much benefit. Gradually again, I have developed a measurable joy and happiness in my mind. The strength of my mind has increased, and my problems lessened and ceased. But even with all his dharma capacities, it doesn't mean, oh, we're going to get a free ride, or things are just easy, or there's no dukkha, or no difficulty. It means practice, use your time as skillfully as you can, because you don't know when the dukkha will come. You don't know when you'll ride down a hill like I did and take a fall. Or whatever it is, in a car, walking on a street and slipping, eating something that somehow is not okay. Because this is part of human life. Dukkha is part of human life. And one of the great beauties of the Buddhist teaching, he said, dukkha can lead to the end of dukkha. Dukkha can lead to freedom if we learn how to pay attention, if we learn how to be mindful, if we start to focus or concentrate or collect or compose ourselves so that we can use the intelligence that's innate to human beings to awaken. So 
So I'll end with a quote from Ananda, who was one of Buddha's attendants and disciples. <clears throat> and he's talking after the Buddha died. So, like, that's some dukkha, right? You've got a teacher you love who's awake. And even the Buddha, with all his great powers, all his contemplative uh, refinement, he died. That's, that's what happens to human beings. And so Ananda's writing, he says, all the directions are obscure. The teachings are not clear to me. With our benevolent friend gone, it seems as if all is darkness. But then he continues, even though he's grieving the loss of his teacher, the loss of the Buddha. He says, for one whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. And he's taken the gifts that the Buddha's offered and he understands their value. Let's sit for a moment before we end. For one whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. you all for your kind attention. We'll have a period of walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.